Good morning. Welcome, church. If you would, if you turn to Acts chapter 4 with me, we're going to be there today. Let me start with Acts 1.18 and then let's pray. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, today, um, the reality of this morning is the same of most days. We have burdens and we have things on us that pull us away from you and off mission. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would visit us. Your spirit would move and that you would direct us so that we might be clear bold that we might be reminded just why we're here and what you are doing help us to get outside ourselves and to see you clearly today we pray in Jesus name amen Jesus has a mission for his church it's clearly, clearly articulated in Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Powered by the Holy Spirit, the church is to be Jesus' witnesses. That's why we're in the book of Acts. That's why we've been looking at the book of Acts over the last um, I don't know how many months, but we've been there um, for a while. And we're trying to focus in on this idea that God's presence in us, his Holy Spirit moving, is for the world. And we've been coming face to face with this reality that the mission of Jesus is not just for some small, elite, professional little group. The mission is for his church his bride, for all of us that are here today. This has been a hard month for our family and particularly this past week as we have um, lost my wife's dear grandmother. And Though it's been a difficult time, it's been a glorious time as well. And it has awakened my heart once again to understand what it looks like and what it's supposed to be to have a life empowered by the Holy Spirit and to be focused on the mission of Jesus. It's been unbelievable. You see, the stories of Margaret Holcomb's life are vast. 
And there are thousands of them, and we do not have enough time for me to go through the list. But this lady had bold faith, and she was a prayer warrior and a soul winner. And she saw her life through the lens of loving Jesus and making him known, and that was it. Whether she was on mission, whether she was um, living a life as a pastor's wife from Maryland to California, from Michigan to Georgia, they pastored churches all across the nation, and usually ones that were in trouble, and usually ones that nobody else wanted to go to. Or even when she was working at the counter at Belk's. You see, when people came to Belk's to buy perfume, they smelled the aroma of Christ on this little old lady. And she said time and time again, I know why I'm here. It's not to sell perfume. It's to share Christ with everyone I come in contact with. See, she knew what missional was before we ever coined the phrase. Before we ever defined that or what that even means. That's the way she lived. So today, what makes for a bold witness? What would it take to make you be a bold witness. Why do some people seem to shine in the midst of persecution and hardship and others just wilt? Daniel's already helped us kind of catch up, but last week we saw in Acts 4 that after 5,000 people, just men, in particular, so there were women and children involved as well. So more than 5,000 people were gathered in the early church. Peter and John were taken into custody, and they were questioned for what? For just a simple act of healing a crippled man in the name of Jesus. You see, as the church was growing, so was the persecution. And we watched Peter's boldness as he proclaimed that there is no other name under heaven by which men are saved, even in the midst of persecution, which brought everything to a head and for the religious leaders to say, no more, no more. No more teaching, no more preaching in the name of Jesus. So let's look at our text for today and let's read this together. If you will turn to verse 23 in your Bibles, I'm probably not going to be able to keep up with this screen for a minute, so let me just read it to you. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what to the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, 
Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers is gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your hand had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servant to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your healing hand. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. How did the disciples respond to the band, to the persecution, to the threats? How did they respond? Did they shrink back? Were they tempted not to preach anymore? Did they run away? No. Look at verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends. They went to their friends, their own. It's the same word that John uses in, gospel, in his gospel in chapter 1, verse 11, when, Jesus, when he says that Jesus came to his own. Peter and John's initial response was not to go anywhere but to the church, to the fellowship of faith. They immediately went to their community around them, for encouragement, support, the ministry of presence, to fellowship. What's your initial response to persecution, to hardship, to conflict, to threats? What do you do when your attempts at ministry or love or care or sharing the gospel are met with no thank yous? Or please don't speak to me again in the name of Jesus. Do you isolate yourself? Do you give up? Do you pat yourself on the back for a moral victory? At least you tried. Do you plot? Do you scheme for a little personal attack? Or do you reach out to the family of God? Do you engage and invite others into your crisis, into your persecution, into your story? Do you seek the ministry of fellowship? See, the church is a collective house of the Spirit. Peter would later write in 1 Peter chapter 2 that as we come to God, as we come to Jesus, this living stone that was rejected by man, he is taking us and he is putting us together, building us up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood and to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. That's what God is doing. One of my favorite theologians, Bruce Milne, writes this. To come to meet with the people of God is, in effect, to move into the magnetic field of the Holy Spirit. 
where the powers of heaven impinge upon the powers of earth. Thus, every gathering, no matter how meager the number or how uninviting or uninspiring the circumstances and setting, is fraught with unlimited possibilities. It doesn't matter how many people are in this room. It doesn't matter how much you look like. It doesn't matter if you're some ragtag bunch of no good, miserable, fallen on your face sinners, which we all are. When we gather, we put ourselves in the place where the Spirit of God can draw us in and empower us, and the possibilities are unlimited. Not because you're the greatest thing to the kingdom of God, but because his Holy Spirit indwells us and moves in us and has the power to do whatever he would deem worthy. So when we meet here, guess what? The Spirit of God, the wind of God could even blow in here. You might even shout. You might even draw your hand out of your pocket and get it three quarters of the way up. Something miraculous might happen. Your neighbor might walk in here, hear the gospel, get saved, and the next day you're teaching him the Bible. You think? Maybe? Peter and John, they sought out the fellowship. When times got hard, they did not run. They were part of a community. It wasn't just the Peter and John show and their ministry. You know, go to peterandjohn.com and, you know, support their men. No! It wasn't about them. They were part of a community, part of the body of Christ, and they sought refuge there, and they gave this shocking report. Listen, they came before the church, and they said, look, the ruling class has issued a cease and desist order. We're not to preach or teach in the name of Jesus anymore. What should we do? This was serious. How do you think we would respond if two of our missionaries came off the field and brought this report to us? We might say, you know what, guys, you probably need to sit with Pastor Larry, and he's going to have to help you refine this message you're preaching. Because you, the, you saying you killed Jesus the Christ, whom God raised from the dead, and you must repent and believe, and there's no other name under heaven but Jesus to be saved, that's not playing well in your context. You may need to massage that a little bit. Or we might say, you know, we need to come up with a different strategic plan. This thing's not working. This would be more me. And you, Jonathan, you guys can't go out together anymore because you're dangerous. Are you seeing the church, the church getting things like this happen and they say, we need to get lawyered up. We need to make sure what's our legal standing. Should we sue for religious liberties? Defamation of character? What should we do? 
Hopefully we would not respond that way here at North Wake. But the church, the early church, they did not respond that way. In unity, they prayed. It says, somewhere in here. Okay, we're missing a few. So just bear with me. Go to verse 24. It says, when they heard it, they were filled and they lifted their voices together to God. The church's response seems to be involuntary. It's almost reflexive. It's not something they sat down and thought about. What did they do? Immediately, they heard, they prayed. They heard, they prayed. They heard, they prayed. It was a reflex. It was about who they were. And this wasn't the first time. This is no isolated event. You see, Jesus, after Jesus' ascension, the disciples returned to Jerusalem to wait upon the promised Holy Spirit. What did they do? They gathered in the upper room. And they were all in one accord and they were devoting themselves to prayer together with women and Mary and the mother of Jesus and his brothers. A few weeks ago we studied what are the main devotions of the church in Acts? What was it? They were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to breaking bread, and to prayer. This is who the church is. This is what they do. And if we're not united in prayer, is it any surprise that we struggle with disunity in the church or we struggle with the bold proclamation of the gospel? I think this is exactly why Luke records this prayer. He could have easily done this. He could have easily said, and when they heard the report, a prayer meeting broke out and the foundations of the place where they were meeting were shaken and they went out and proclaimed. But that's not what he does. He quotes their prayer verbatim. And there's a reason. I think he wants to school us in how to pray in the midst of the life of persecution that we're going to live. You and I. I know that's very un-American because we are supposed to be able to pursue life, liberty, and health, and wealth, and whatever else. But listen to what Jesus said. Remember the word that I said to you? A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But he also said this, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What do you do with persecution and threats and opposition? What do they tempt you to do? You see, they often tempt us to be so 
focused on the surroundings and the circumstances that God gets pushed and faded to the background. You ever push that button when you're putting together a PowerPoint slide and the front goes to the back and the back goes to the front? That's exactly what happens when, to us often when we meet trials and temptations and opposition and God goes to the background and the circumstances come. You see, at the beginning of this church's prayer, they're worried first about their perspective then their petition, and then God answers them in power. Perspective, petition, and power. When the church turns to pray, their prayers start with the worship of God, with who he is, what he has done, and what he is doing. That is their focus. They start their prayer off with sovereign Lord. That's a theological statement. That's not just something you throw in there just to kind of as a prerequisite to whatever else you really want. Sovereign Lord. Most powerful being in the universe, creator of heavens and earth and the sea and everything in them. What are they proclaiming? They're proclaiming that God, you, You are far more, far more powerful than anything in this life and anyone in this world. You are the sovereign Lord of the universe. And we could spend the rest of our day there. You get that one right and a lot of other stuff falls into place. You see... They didn't stop there, though. In the next verse, in verse 25, they say, Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. Okay. They just prayed a whole lot right there. Through whose mouth? Father David. Okay. Who was speaking through David? The Holy Spirit. And what did he say? Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. What are they doing? They're taking scripture and they're allowing it to shape their view of everything that's happening. Their circumstances. You see, they understood what was happening and they understood who was at work by what they had known through the God of Revelation, a God who speaks 
through his word and by the power of his spirit. That shaped how they saw everything they were going through. And it's evident if you look at the next two verses. For truly in this city, okay, so now they stepped out of Old Testament and they're using that lens to see right here. In this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus. So what they've just gone through, this passion of Christ, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They saw through these few verses in Psalm 2 the prophetic application that they had just lived through. The plotting, the scheming of nations and kings was in vain. Going against the Lord and his anointed was vanity for Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles in Israel. The sovereign God of the universe had a plan and his hand was bringing it about and they refocused themselves. Even in these terrible threats and circumstances, they refocused themselves to that idea and understanding. No matter how bad it is in your life right now, I promise you, That the God of the universe is there. And you may not be able to see it. And your circumstances may have gotten so loud that God fades to the background. But everything is happening under his hand and his plan. His redemptive work is happening. You see, we often bump into these ideas of the sovereignty of God in prayer. And if God is sovereign and he's doing all these things, people will say, then why should we pray? If it's all by his hand and his plan, why should we pray? Here's the thing. The church in the early church doesn't have a problem with this. They don't have a problem. Yes, he's sovereign. Yes, we pray. Why? Here's what I think. I think because if we believe we're the determining factor and God can't, doesn't have the power and the right to intervene into our lives at any given time he wants to, then you better get to work. You better pull up your bootstraps and get to work if you're the determinant factor. But if God is sovereign and he does have the power and the right to intervene into your life and mine and into his creation in any way he chooses, pray. Beg him to. Beg him to come in power into your life, into your neighbor's life, into this church's life. Because he can. He can overwhelm your will. We make choices that have great consequences.
But when was the last time God showed up and you were like, man, I wish you wouldn't have messed that up? Pray. Once they righted their perspective, once they put the lenses of faith on and they looked through those into the circumstances of their life, they petitioned this great and mighty king. And what do you expect the church requested of this great sovereign Lord of creation? What do you think they said? What do you pray for in persecution and opposition and pain? You pray for the hedge, right? You know you do. You pray for the hedge of protection and the deliverance of God in whatever circumstance you're in. I do too. You know you do. I know in the flesh what I would be praying. I would be praying this. Oh God, deliver us from this evil and wicked group of men. I might even break out into an imprecatory psalm of David like Psalm 58. I love this. Oh God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O oh Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Let them be like a snail that dissolves into slime. That's praying. That's praying Bible. Right? We come up against opposite... I promise you there's been times in that elder meeting where you've prayed certain things like that. <laughs> Might not have been completely with this, but yes. But that's not what happens. That's not what happens in the church. When they petition God for, they do this. This is shocking. They petition God for more of the same. They petition God for more boldness, more signs and wonders, the very things that got them into this mess in the first place. They pray for more. Give us more. They ask for strength to continue to speak in boldness. They desired greater and greater opportunities. And they, they looked and they said, stretch out your hand to heal. That You would ca cause signs and wonders to be performed. All of this in the name of Jesus, the one they've just been threatened not to preach in that name. They boldly approach God's throne asking him to increase their witness, knowing that it was most likely going to increase the persecution. Here it is, church. All boiled down into a bumper sticker because I know you like these. Here it is. Bold witnesses pray bold prayers, and bold prayers create bold witnesses. Bold witnesses pray bold prayers, and bold prayers create bold witnesses. See, God was on the move. And they knew it. And they wanted to be a part of it. Look at verse 30. Look at verse 30. 
It says that while you stretch out your healing hand, while God was reaching down into a broken world and he was healing and they saw it. This is not just a healing touch for a crippled man at the beautiful gate. This is the healing touch of Jesus who was coming to heal a sin-sick humanity. This is why Peter, Peter boldly proclaimed in Acts 4.12, And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. God is at work. My question to you, church, is can you see it? They can. Can you? He is stretching out his healing hand to touch you and to touch everyone around you. The sovereign Lord of heaven and earth and sea and everything in it is on a mission to save. And he is reaching down to you and he's calling you to a place, your faith in him. To repent of your sins and be saved. And then to see your life as being lived out in the midst of that mission. To be part of his rescue squad. There are people all around you that are dying. I have been engaged with my boys in the world of soccer. And it is consuming our lives right now. To, I'm not sure to a healthy point, but we're right teetering right there and we're trying to keep it balanced. can pray for my idol. But I... I look around those fields and I see all these families. And there's a whole lot of them out there that need Jesus and I'm not bold enough. How about your circle? How about you? Do you see the circumstances of your life, your job, your hardships, your relationships in this community as governed by God's hand and his plan? What if you saw God's redemptive work as more important than your circumstances? What if... People coming to Christ became more important to you than your comfort. Would that change the way you pray? Would your prayer card maybe be less about you and more about the kingdom and more about the glory of God in other people's lives? You see, bold witnesses pray bold prayers and bold prayers Create bold witnesses. And the last verse. How did God respond? When they prayed, the place in which they gathered together was shaken. 
And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak in the word of God with great boldness. You see, God can make us aware of his presence in a myriad of ways. In this setting, he does it by shaking the foundations. In other settings, he does it by fire, smoke, wind, even a whisper in 1 Kings. And God uses these various means to speak to our troubled souls in order to indicate that he hears our prayers and he's near. He's present with us. God was responding to their prayers. He was present in power. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And this empowering of the Holy Spirit wasn't just for a show or for some crazy thing. It was so that they would leave that place and be bold. It led to the proclamation of the gospel by everyone who was there. Not just the preacher. Everyone left that prayer meeting filled with the Holy Spirit and proclaiming the word boldly. So how should we seek that as a church? How should we seek the power of the Holy Spirit that leads to the bold proclamation? How should we pray? We should ask for it. Revolutionary. It's not rocket science. It's not some crazy mathematical equation that has to be worked out just right so that the Spirit falls just when you need. Pray. Unite together and pray. This is what Jesus told us in Luke 11. I tell you, ask. And it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks it knocks. It will be opened. What father among you. If his son asked for a fish. Would instead of a fish give him a serpent. Or if he asked for an egg. Would give him a scorpion. If you then. Who are evil. Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will the Heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit if you ask? If you ask Him. This prayer is not for a church that wants to sit back and be introspective or is seeking some unique interesting, unusual experience. This prayer is for God's people who want the gift of bold proclamation. This is a prayer for those who want to be a part of the outstretched healing hand of God and for the name of Jesus to be glorified above all things and for the power of the Holy Spirit to be unleashed into this evil and dark world. This is a prayer for those who are tempted to quit, to cash it in, who are in the midst of real persecution and threats. 
This is a prayer for us today. North Wake, this should be our prayer. If we really want to be bold witnesses, if we really want to take this year focus and really take the message of God to the world, then this is what we pray. And we pray boldly. Unashamed. Stop tagging on the end of your petitions to God if it be your will. Just pray his will. His will is that people would be saved. That's what his will is. His will is that his Holy Spirit would be unleashed throughout your life into other people's lives. That's what his will is. So pray that. Pray for boldness. Pray for signs and wonders that attest to him. Today is the day to pray. God has stretched out his healing hand. He has sent his son Jesus on a rescue mission. And Jesus took on flesh. He lived the life you could not live. And he died the death you should have died. And God raised him from the dead. We might have life, life eternal with God. And if you have never made that exchange, maybe today's the day. Don't harden your heart. Don't wait for some special invitation. Bow your knee and bow your head. Confess your sins to God. Beg Him to forgive you. Turn from them and turn to Christ. And I would love to help you do that today. I will be right down here if that is you today. You come find me. Or lean over to somebody next to you. Tell them I want that. Church, I'm calling you out today. There's no nice way to put it. I'm just calling you out. To pray right now. Not wait for the prayer meeting the first Monday of every month. Right now, I'm calling you to pray in unity. Not for your circumstances, not for the circumstances of everything else, not for all the threats around us and the persecution around the world. We all know that and we should be praying against that. But right now, what I want you to pray for is this. That the Spirit of God would fall upon this church in such a way that we could not help but be bold. That when you leave that door, it's not so easy to just lay those things aside. To say amen and raise our hands and sing and then to walk out and live like everybody else is ridiculous. And it's not authentic and the people around you see right through it. Today's the day. to plead with God that we would be a part of his work 
while he stretches out his healing hand to those around us, that we would be used, that by the power of the Spirit, we would be in people's lives. I don't know what to say half the time to people either. I mumble and bumble and fall on my face all the time. But here's the beautiful thing. You're not going to save anybody. The Holy Spirit coming upon their heart is going to change them and save them. Bumble and stumble. Just tell them, make sure they know you love them and that you're an idiot and you can't say the right words. But you want to and you'll find them out and you'll help them and you'll walk alongside with them. Today's the day. So as the worship team comes, here's my invitation to you. Let's unify in prayer. You can sit in your seat and you can bow your head. That's fine. But some days you need to take a step out and say, draw a line in the sand and say, today's the day. And I'm unifying with my brothers and sisters in this place and begging God to move in our church so that we would be a bold witness. And that the Spirit of God would fall upon us in a way that would actually make a difference in Wake Forest and to the ends of the earth. And that would be the most important thing. And if you're wrestling with this salvation thing, or whether or not you believe or you need help with that, Please come down to the front and I'll be standing right over here off to the side. Please come talk to me. I would love to talk with you. The elders, there's other elders here that would love to share the hope of Christ with you. Let's pray. You come. Lord Jesus. We beg of you to cleanse your bride and fill her with your Holy Spirit that she might have one focus. To love you, Jesus, and to make you known. That all other things, all other worries, all other, all other distractions, threats, hurts would be cast away. Holy Spirit, fall upon us that we might fulfill the mission you've given us to be your witnesses to the ends of the earth. Come now, we pray.